Hello and welcome to a new season of On War, the podcast. To kick off this first episode, Austin and I share our perspectives on whether trade or war has had the greatest impact on world history, and even challenge whether such a question is fair to pose in the first place. Well, we're back again, Austin. It's been a little while since we did this. Um, I would like to say I've enjoyed the break, but honestly, I'm not quite sure where my winter holidays went. Uh, How are you feeling? I always think it's funny when people say, yeah, we've taken a break. I don't think I actually stopped working. I've been doing neck deep in PhD things. So um, now it's good to get good to get back on the air and, and uh, talk through this. So this was actually an episode that we planned as our final episode for the last season. But unfortunately, due to a couple of different technological problems that we had, uh, never quite made it to where then. So instead of ending with a slightly... I don't want to say less serious, but a, a slightly different kind of direction where we're starting uh, the new season with a with an interesting, I think, topic. So uh, tonight we're looking at uh, the, the broad premise of what has had a greater impact on the history of, of, of the world, and particularly the political history of the world, war or trade. Uh, this is sort of prompted by an attitude that I encounter, I don't know about you, but I encounter from time to time, both from historians and in historical discussions and also in, in sort of the wider public around how much emphasis we should put on military history and military accomplishments particularly if and even if you want to use the term military accomplishments because obviously when we're talking about those what we are talking about is the death and destruction of human life so i think this is well summed up uh by a very popular sort of um public historian john green who runs Crash Course World History, which is a fantastic uh, YouTube channel if you want to just do a light sort of 15-minute take on uh, all sorts of wonder of issues, and he treats them very, very well. But but I think he sums up the kind of attitude I'm talking about here quite well when he's talking about why he doesn't talk about war and military history so much, when he says that, ultimately, I find cooperation and trade more interesting than the violent and destructive aspects of world history, because I think they probably ultimately matter more. And later on in that same episode, which we'll link in the show notes, he goes on to quote John Stuart Mill, who has a similar perspective from an earlier time, saying that commerce first taught nations to see with good will the wealth and prosperity of one another, before the patriot, unless sufficiently advanced in culture to feel the world his country, wished all countries weak, poor, and ill-governed. So, the sort of presumption that's being made here both by Mill and Green and, and many other people is that all trade is, is mutually beneficial, that cooperation is, is the way to advance society. These are ideas that I don't necessarily disagree with, but where this episode sort of starts its story and where my kind of objection to this attitude is that is that I think that it misses the sort of a central part of, of human history. The conf- it, it, it sort of takes a moral position against conflict, certainly an admirable moral position from a lot of different perspectives, but takes a position against conflict and war because of what it is, and thus potentially misses out the effect that it's had on our development, the reality it's had on our uh, history and the stories that, that comprise our lives. I don't know what your take on this is. I think I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that this standpoint 
um, limits discussion. But I think this is part of the issue we've got with any sort of absolutionist uh, approach to theory. If you look at this right, and what you're doing is you're taking a approach that says, well, trade is the concept. And if we didn't have any of this messy conflict stuff, then we can argue that trade is much more important. I don't necessarily think that in order to make the argument that trade has a greater impact than war, you need to go as far as Stuart Mill does, just because I don't think it can actually be boiled down to those moralistic terms. Um, you know, regular listeners of this show will remember that both of us deal in, in more so non-state actors and, and violent extremism. But even uh, when you look at conventional wars, most of them, at least historically, were fought with the belief that what they were doing was morally justified at the time. That same can't be said for a lot of the trade practices that were occurring at the time. This is a time before people were really thinking about whether it was ethical to own a sweatshop or, you know, at the time we're talking slave labor colonies. So I think that assigning a moral value to this debate is, I wouldn't say problematic as much as counterproductive, particularly because when you look at things like John Stuart Mill saying that commerce is what taught nations to see goodwill to each other in terms of wealth and prosperity. Well, that's simply not true, I would argue. Um, we don't see the rise of major mercantile class until well after. Um, we've had at least a 1,000 years of warfare. We're still looking at the late 1700s by the time that national debt as a concept is finalised. So are we to believe that before the advent of what we now see as commerce, per se, we were just barbarians... That, that doesn't make sense either. Any civilization has those two things. And I think that's my point, is that you can't really have one without the other. And assigning a moral value to one implicitly requires that you don't require the other, or we should not require the other. Yeah, I, I've always been cautious about bringing uh, morality into international politics. I think that particularly when you're dealing with uh, the functions of, of nation states and even collective non-state actors, to treat them as if they're in a gestalt individual capable of a sort of collective morality, I think you run into problems. But we're not a philosoph philosophical podcast, and we're not a economics podcast, so I guess we have to bring this back to what impact war as a concept and a practice has had in our political and social development and what that means to, to make our arguments. So the first topic I want to bring forward here is is how conflict and the practice of war as an organized activity worked alongside the, the development of our political society. So arguably one of the great sort of keystones of the modern nation state and its interactions with the world is a professional military, either in its use or in just its existence. And this is a, a long kind of standing argument of the development of political societies that basically stems from the idea that as a society develops, as it uh, gains in resources, it, it has the capacity to focus more of its energy into sort of coercive means. And that this means that everyone else around them has to develop similar means, where they, be they standing armies or uh, walls around their cities, to defend what they have against predatory others. And whether or not the others are truly predatory or not, isn't necessarily this issue. The point here is that everyone feels the need to modernize and develop stronger sort of defenses and offensive capabilities against whoever's on the outside. This othering is something we, we come back to again and again and again in this, in this podcast. Yeah, but I think it goes a little deeper than that. 
it, well, I would encourage people to read John Keegan's book, A History of Warfare, um, in which particularly, I mean, even in the first chapter, he talks about war as part of human culture. And one of the things that he raises is the concept of a an individual or a collective individual being the lawful bearer of arms as a method of upholding order. Now, it is, I don't want to say obvious, but it's fairly logical, in my opinion at least, that and in order for trade to exist, there has to be a measure of law and order and society. And at least when you look at the development of human civilization, the ones that have been able to impose that, the ones that have been able to impose order, at least from a Westphalian standpoint, although I'd argue even in smaller, less developed states, you're looking at the key precursor to organized trade being a lawful enforcer of order, of customary norms that bind our behaviors together. And that necessarily comes with a level of violence. Yeah, so one of the other references uh, in today's show notes uh, is from Gabrielle and Metz, A Short History of Warfare. Not to be confused with your reference, A History of Warfare. Um, This is freely available, uh, published by the Strategic Studies Institute of the United States. And so they claim, and this is a direct quote, that the development of central state institutions and a supportive administrative apparatus inevitably gave form and stability to military structures. The result was the expansion and stabilization of a formerly loose and unstable warrior caste that first emerged in tribal societies of the fifth millennium. And they're referring here to the, the Sumerian society and its first development of modern, modern army, but that's a very similar process to what you're talking about here. We're moving from a, a tribal situation of customary norms and understandings and a, a war, a, an explicit warrior caste to administrative institutions that, that regulate this both internally but also externally. And this is a, sort of a development we see again and again in, in the city-states of Greece, and also, of course, most obviously in, in the rise of the Roman Empire, in its use of the legion externally and expanding and enforcing peace in its, in its external empire, and also its uh, internal enforcement as well. So the use of force plays into this. It does, but and this is part of it, right? I think what you said when you were going through that, and you're talking about making a progress, developing from one state to another state in terms of what Gabrielle and Metz talk about. And, I mean, Keegan also raises this point. But I think it's we actually in that transition and in that explanation of that transition, we have the rise of this other that you spoke of before because the concept of a lawful bearer of arms, they are seen as a development, as a rise or an advancement in the culture from this, you know, rabid, uh, loose and unstable warrior caste, to quote Metz. But for large sections of the world, and particularly when you talk about things like Greece, Rome, even later stages of world uh, development, there were individuals and, and whole societies that never made that transition to bureaucracy. And the concept that the bureaucracy, and by extension, meaningful and structured trade is necessary for civilization is at the core of quite a lot of this othering um, and the result in imperialism and the rest of it. Yeah, in fact, the designation of tribal societies, aside from the fact that it often ignores structures that from another perspective might be seen as, as bureaucratic or even as legitimizing the bearing of arms and, you know, a warrior caste explicitly designates those who can and can't. You know, the warriors are the users of those force. But the fact that we view it for through our particular code is, is sort of informative, I think, in, in what we see as civilization and its development. He brought up um, the Westphalian tradition. I think this is another interesting point to mention. 
if you were to walk into a, a first or second year uh, university level tutorial on nationhood or on statehood and, and the modern state, the, the first thing that gets thrown up in your face to read is is the, is the Westphalian system. What that refers to is the, the Treaty of Westphalia, um, which was actually you know, a series of arrangements made to end the wars of religion of previous centuries in Europe and establish the concept of, of state sovereignty. Uh, it defined territorial borders within which that sovereignty could be exercised and externally to which that use of force to try and compel another person, particularly to uh, convert to your religion, was not legitimate. It also opened uh, explicit trade routes between different countries. But aside from trade, and, and trade has often been the basis of particularly pre-modern state institutions, so when you look at as far back as the Sumerians and, and the Egyptians, the Romans... Trade was a, a primary source of income for the state, and, I mean, it remains so, obviously. But there's another economic institution very prevalent in everyone's lives. Uh, all of our listeners will have had some encounter with this system in their lives, uh, and that's taxation. Now, while taxation has always been a large part of economic development, all the way back to the Romans and before, the modern systems that we deal with today in income taxation and in other sort of and other explicit uh, economic transfers uh, actually owe their origins to the funding of conflicts. That really only starts to come up uh, around the same time as the Westphalian state. You look at the end of the, the end of the 17th century onwards. What's happening during this time is the expansion of what becomes European imperialism. Um, that's largely driven by trade, and it is largely driven by economic value. But to look at that and say, well, that's a demonstration of Green's point doesn't go deep enough because, yes, they were pursuing those trade routes and they were pursuing increased revenue, but the vast majority of that revenue went straight into the state and a large proportion of the wealth of that state, particularly during the period I'm talking about, which is the sort of late 1700s onward until about the mid-1800s, you're looking at massive, massive bills that are going into military force, developing their militaries, increasing innovation in the fields of artillery and field artillery, ships. You're also looking at other military technologies, including logistics and the like, and simply building ships. This is the period of history where the British Navy becomes what it's famous for being. Now, the reason for that is twofold. One, to project power. But two, to protect those vital trade routes. Now, we call them trade routes. But in fact, when you look at how imperialism worked, they weren't really trade routes. They were colonies sending resources back to the motherland, so to speak, who would then send something in return at a cut price. The goal being to increase its revenue and increase its international prestige, which allowed it to operate freer and more powerfully on the international relations stage. And the main way they did that was developing their military in order to secure that prestige in the major wars that occurred during that period. And Alistair mentions we talk about the world wars of the 19th century. World wars is something I've thrown into the show notes there quite deliberately. I mean, when you look at uh, even World War One and World War Two, draw on the map who the major actors are, and they're European. And yes, there are colonial implications, but though this is a period where they are still colonies. I mean, it's, in World War One, Australia doesn't have its own army. We put put forward an imperial force to act on behalf of Great Britain. And a lot of the conflicts that occur outside of Europe are related to sort of the different colonies of different actors. So if you then trace that backwards and look at the uh, earlier European co conflicts, uh, including the Napoleonic Wars, which I know is a, uh, an interest of yours, Austin, I don't think it's necessarily 
uh, unfair to label those as sort of early, at least proto-World Wars in the 19th century. And there's a long history of those. Yeah, so that... There is an author that writes on this. It's one of my uh, favorite books on the subject. Uh, Bell writes a book called The First Total War. And what he's looking at is the uh, revolutionary wars up to and including what were then known as the Napoleonic Wars. And what he's arguing there is that we see the expansion of the the very characteristics we say the First World War is the first total war. And you say, well, no, actually, that's further back. You're looking at the 19th century. And for that is that we see mass mobilization of both resources and um, manpower in order to fight a war of, of destruction. And it was. It was a war of an existential war at times, at least for the French Republic and later for Napoleon. But this is important. And Alistair raises a good point. He talks about the World Wars, First and Second World Wars, being mostly European conflicts, but also maintain the colonies. Take German East Africa, for example, which was largely taken in a fairly brutal campaign that turned into a guerrilla campaign for the purposes simply of adding territory to the British Empire. There was no great material value to be had from German East Africa. They just wanted to get rid of it. Yeah, and I mean, you know, part of this is tying into prestige, and prestige gains wealth and power both together and separately, um, and they're not necessarily directly related in the ways that particularly uh, economists might normally conceive them as. And the other thing that you mentioned there that I think is really interesting and is worth pointing out here and sort of looking at the economic development here is mass mobilization. Now, under a feudal system, you do get a form of mobilization, but it's not en masse, and it's sort of based on, on obligation. But what we see at this period is a, a mass mobilization of the people. This is everyone below a certain um, economic level, and those who are above it, although they certainly get involved as officers, there's a different sort of expectation. But we're also seeing the development of early, not always democracy, certainly in the case of England, we're starting to see some franchise. But there's a perception that everyone must be doing their bit. And the, those below, the, the certainly the, the landed class, are at the very pointy end of it. They're doing their bit fundamentally by dying for their country, or at least making the other bastard die for his. What we see, or what some economists have argued, is the outcome of this, is that to pay for these conflicts, new forms of taxation are brought in, and they're justified partially on that same principle, that you who don't earn much money and thus can't really be taxed that much, do your bit by, by signing up, by volunteering for king and country or, or whatever, and that we, the, the landed class, do our bit by paying increased taxation. And thus, it's a collective effort, it's a mass mobilization of economic resources as much as bodies. Interestingly enough, lots of those taxational structures remain to this day. Income tax... As we know it today, particularly in, in Commonwealth countries, owes its origins to the Napoleonic War. And what the particular reference I'm making here, Shaver and um, Stasavich uh, make, is, is on inheritance tax. Is a very was a very new thing being brought in almost 200 years ago in relation to these conflicts, in way of funding these conflicts. As a landed person, you die, you have all of this wealth, you give it to whoever you're in, whoever inherits, uh, but the state gets to take some of that off. At the time, it was being taken off to pay for a conflict. But, of course, inheritance tax remains across the West to this day. And there's a really good example of what else is talking about here in the Russian imperial, or the Russian empire, during all the way up until the beginning of the First World War, basically. Now, at that point, everything belonged to the state, and through them, the Tsar. And so the best way for the Tsar to express his power, which they were doing at the time, through the increased 
economic power of Russia as it developed very slowly uh, through its delayed industrial revolution, but also, importantly, through its participation in things like the War of the Seventh Coalition against Napoleon um, and earlier against Frederick the Great, where they had pretty major power victories. Russia comes out of the Napoleonic Wars as the most powerful faction in Europe and the most influential one. Now, that had very little to do with trade. They had a massive trade deficit with the England as a result of basically an early form of the Lend-Lease program. But other than that, not a heck of a lot of trade, at least internationally. What they had, though, was incredible military power that they had proven by defeating Napoleon. And so they parlayed that into power that lasted all the way up until the Crimean War, almost 30 years later. And I think when we look at, and particularly when we look historically in international relations, there's a danger of taking this Westphalian model, this realist approach, and ignoring the fact that for a large proportion of the time we're talking about, when the contest between trade and war as the most dominant power was being played out, the people that were in charge were often quite egotistical, and they weren't bound by the same sort of structures that we see today. So things like, for example, the Russian Imperial Guard sucking down metric tons of gold had no trade value at all, had no economic value at all. But to the Tsar and to his peers who were making decisions, their status and their military prowess and their impressiveness physically were their own reward. And that had more impact than an extra trade route to India would have, for example. Yeah, I think this is a a really important point to make. Whenever you're looking at anything in politics uh, or in international relations, there is a tendency whether you're from an economic background or a social sciences background, to uh, start to privilege a model over the reality. The reality is, even when you're dealing at the broad spectrum of of international relations, and I know I said earlier that you shouldn't abstract a a state or an organization as an individual with an individual's moral sense, but when you are dealing with all of these things, what you're dealing with is interactions between human beings, and those interactions are as complex and as difficult to quantify and to understand often as any interaction between two people in the middle of a a pub, be it a friendly, who's going to buy the next pint, or a bar brawl. So you have to be willing to look at not just how these systems are interacting with each other, but what the influences of powerful people and powerful organizations comprised of people and individuals, human beings, have on each other. There are a couple other things we want to get to with this episode, so I just want to tie this off a little bit to say what we've talked about so far I guess the way I would put it, tie it all up, is that the use of coercive force for and by the state, whether it be a modern nation-state or a city-state or a proto-empire, there's an ongoing relationship. I don't want to phrase this as a as a chicken or an egg kind of dilemma. I don't think that you can really make that claim that first we developed something that might look like a modern military and then we got the nation-state or the other direction. I think that these things sort of coalesce together in a very chaotic manner. And where what order it comes in depends on what instance you look at. You can make the argument either way. But there's an, a relationship here, and it's a relationship of power. Absolutely, and power is always driven, at least in the modern sense, to some extent by the amount of wealth and resource, as opposed to wealth, actually, I would say, that the individual or the state is able to possess. So we have like this, this tripartite relationship between the state, their ability to generate and capitalize on resource and their ability to enforce their will through military might. And all three really come together and interact, at least in the developmental stage, towards this ongoing thing that is power. This is only part of the episode, and it it feels like we're concluding it, maybe doing a slightly different format to what we've done before. But 
There are a couple other things I want to talk about here in relation to trade and war. One of them is that trade, and and we sort of alluded to this already, but trade can also be the object of war. It it, it can cause conflict all of its own. And there's a particular area, moment in history that I find quite interesting personally, and and that's the the opium wars between England and China. I I don't know if this is an area you've ever paid much attention to, Austin, if you've ever been interested in it. Only in passing. So the cliff notes for you and our audience of the conflict, and this is a very brief introduction. There are huge books written on this. Uh, a good starting point uh, would be Michael Dillon's uh, Brief History of Modern China, which will be in the show notes. And you could, like, there are PhD theses in this still. But the cliff notes version of the conflict is that China was a key producer of tea and a few other luxury items, silk and porcelain being the other kind of two, two big ones. So you had a country that was... In many cases, um, particularly for silk in the early part of the, the 17th century, and then later on tea and, 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 that, and a particular kind of very fine porcelain china, from which we derive the term China, surprisingly, China was the only place to, to really find this stuff. Unfortunately for Europe, the trade flow was very uneven. The Imperial China and the Qing Dynasty was largely self-sufficient in terms of its its needs and the only good they really found any value in that europe could provide in exchange was silver the other thing was that china was fairly protectionist it it was fairly xenophobic and it tended to limit the ports from which anything could be traded and that the trade opportunities were limited at an imperial level so at the same time you had some some moments where um scarcity was coming in so england didn't necessarily always have the best access to silver um at the same time, you had some issues with uh, Spain, which was a, a, a or key producer, key tra- trader of, of silver, was, was actually running low on its reserves and, and its colonial acquisitions. And so there was a scarcity of the one thing that could be traded with China for these products. On top of all of that, as has been alluded to, this is a period of colonial expansion. This is the, the later half of the, the 19th century. Uh, Britain's expanding and, and starting to sort of play the rest of Europe a little bit as puppets. And so they're very interested in breaking the monopoly that, that, that China has on this. One of the things they do is they start cultivating tea in India, but at the same time they discover a new product with which they could perhaps introduce in their trades with China to, to pay, maybe break the sort of the sole exchange rate in silver, and that's opium. Now, Dylan particularly notes that the, the idea of a, of a sort of a perfidious British empire suddenly introducing a, a terrible hard drug to the poor, innocent native Chinese who had, until that time, never taken anything stronger than a cup of tea, and I'm heavily quoting here, is is largely a false one. Opium had been present in Chinese texts since at least the 8th century, and it was a a fairly well-known sort of um, medicinal product at the time. But what wasn't contended with was the British ability, particularly through the East India Trading Company, to flood the market with this as a selling it as a hard drug to fast forward the history a little bit and i am butchering this horribly but to fast forward the 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 history of this a little bit it gets to the point where the chinese empire uh the chinese emperor stamps out all opium trade and and renders it illegal seizes huge quantities of the drug from british traders the british respond with force and a very brief war that ends with the Chinese force, naval forces at the time virtually being annihilated by virtue of the fact that they don't have the same military technology. The British then gain permanent concessions for trade, particularly lower trade tra- tariffs, so taxation, which had been at that point very, very high for any foreign trader, any non-Chinese trying to trade within China. The, conce- the granting of eight trading ports 
whereas before they'd been limited to a two, which they had to share with the rest of Europe, but instead they got access to eight ports just for the British. And the island of Hong Kong, which it held the lease for uh, for 99 years, and of course the return to Hong Kong is now back in the news again with the um, Chinese government's proclamation that the one China, two systems that had been agreed with uh, in the 90s is, is no longer vo- uh, valid. Arguably, and, and Dylan makes the argument that this, in, this moment actually contributes heavily to the fall of imperial China and the fracturing of that territory into competing almost feudal states. Uh, the period now is referred to still within Chinese government policy and um, ac- and Chinese academia as the century of humiliation at the hands of the West. And it's actually become one of the underpinning narratives of modern Chinese nationalism and its international attitudes. When China is publicly resists accusations of its own imperialism uh, and the, the rise of the dragon narrative that you see popular in modern America and even in Australia to a certain extent, by pointing to that period of history and said, well, you know, you tried to addict our country to opium just to get some silk, and all we're doing is trying to consolidate our territory. So you can see how a trade war, what was explicitly a trade war about acquiring silk, porcelain, and tea, has had a huge impact on the conduct of modern 21st century politics. Well, one of the contextual things to realize at the beginning of the opening war is that it's in the middle of the great game. And so what you have, and this has obviously has a, a parallel to where we are at at the moment with China. What we, were, what we had was a, a declining hegemony being the Russians at the time and a rising hegemony being the British. And one of the ways that they fought over each other was the Russians were threatening to take over India. And so as a response to that threatened use of force, the British, not just in China, but also in other areas of the world, were really pushing hard on their colonies to gain uh, more stringent trade concessions and a better economic outcome in the assumption that they could lose the great game. They could lose Afghanistan or they could be threatened in India. The great game is, is a really interesting concept. I was going to push you now for definition, but I'm not. One, I'm wondering now if we shouldn't devote an entire episode just to talking yeah, about we, it. Yeah, we, sh- we can do that. We can do that for sure. So there we go, middle of the episode, we've already announced what we're doing next, so um, that's a little change of plans, but we'll, we'll get to that. Just keep that term, the great game, in your mind. Don't worry about not necessarily understanding it now, because we will give it a whole episode to itself in two weeks' time. The biggest lesson, though, from this is that the Opium Wars really is the classic case of gunboat diplomacy, and in fact, the term gunboat refers to the kinds of vessels that were used to enforce this relationship. And it's that projection of hard power that we want to trade with you on our terms. No, you won't. Well, we'll blow up your navy and now you have to, or we blow you up some more. There are other examples of this throughout history. Uh, War Plan Red is an interesting one to point to, although I think that, again, is a topic for another time. And potentially even the American Revolution has some influences in European trade dynamics and power relationships, doesn't it? I mean, the example I would be more familiar with is the War of 1812, which was effectively an American decision to try and yoink Canada away from the British while they were distracted with Napoleon. At the same time, we have the Louisiana Purchase. So uh, when we look at this area of history, we're looking at a lot of economic change. But a lot of economic change that was given capacity or being able to occur through warfare the Russians sold Alaska. Um, the French were selling off parts of America as well, Louisiana Purchase being one. Um, and the British were trying to squeeze a good way of getting out of the continental system that Napoleon was trying to set up. And for those of you who don't know, the continental system was a, a diplomatic tool that Napoleon was trying to use to effectively unite Europe in blockade of the UK. Um, and so the War of 1812 was a result of 
a lack of prestige and a lack of power. This is 1812, but the British are still carrying on the British Isles, and they're having very limited success in 1812 on the Peninsula Campaign. So we can see how here, at least in the War of 1812, you have a combination of economic gain, trade pressures through the continental system, but also a lack of demonstrated military might that's prompted a rising nation, being the nascent US, to attack its larger rival, being the UK. So the final point I want to get to with this episode and sort of, as always is the case with this podcast, these are pointers and discussions to, to, to prompt further research and, and pub arguments and however else you want to take it. We're, we're never going to in any of our episodes, get all the way through any of this stuff. But one of the other things I want to point to that is perhaps much more present in our current political situation is trade as a product of war. And so one of the things I would point to as a a very modern example is uh, the lasting impact of the Second World War. One of the biggest impacts it had was a globalization of the world economy. Now, this is partially to do with technology and uh, its development, particularly through conflict, which is perhaps another topic that we should explore in its own episode. But in terms of the distinct relationship between war, trade, and globalization, what really kicks this off is the rebuilding of Europe and the Marshall Plan. Huge amounts of money, companies, industry, and investment flows into Europe from the United States as part of the the rebuilding of Europe and the that is occupied by the West as a bulwark against communism. This is had huge lasting effects on how we how we divide the world throughout the Cold War and afterwards. It leads to the Bretton Woods Agreement. It leads to the European Common Market, arguably, and the IMF as well. These are all institutions that owe their origins in the outcome of the Second World War, all of which, of course, are intrinsically re- embedded in modern trade relations. Yeah, exactly. And if you look at the way that um, particularly American hegemonic influence has been exercised in the in the, well... Let's say the the end of the Second World War onwards, but really the second half of the Cold War onwards. Anywhere they've sort of tried to push their economic footprint, they've also had a military backing. You know, this this concept of a superpower um, is actually quite different in international relations terms to the old guard, the the ancient regime um, concept of a power, of a powerful state. Because while the Americans have never really done something as crass, they do have the carrier battle groups, which they use in order to exert diplomatic pressure and project their power and prestige into areas where they can gain that diplomatic advantage. And one of the best ways they use that, of course, is to reassure allies and to threaten foes in order to secure better trade deals for themselves and better economic position in the world. And that's certainly something that has happened, at least during the Cold War and to an extent after the Cold War. And you can contrast that with the way that China, for example, has been spreading its influence in Africa, absent, largely, gunboat diplomacy, which is a very different approach to how we see the Americans operating now. It is. And if, just to, to bring it back to the Western experience, uh, one of my favorite little, I guess, jokes you could kind of bring out is about who won World War Two And the way I, America came first, Germany came second, Japan came third, and no one else finished. And that's a lame joke, but it has some interesting implications. It is a bit lame, but it does raise a good point. It raises a good point, which is that Everyone thinks of Lend-Lease as this thing, but the Americans actually held off Lend-Lease, the free portion of Lend-Lease, the least part of Lend-Lease, until the British had used up all of their strategic foreign currency reserve and all of their strategic gold reserve. That's one of the reasons they were so fucked after the war. 
I guess there's, there's a couple of other things that came up while we were first researching this episode, um, and a little bit from my earlier studies in, in economics um, that are worth mentioning. The first is that uh, uh, that have a more direct impact, I think, in, in perhaps the, the everyday lives of, of us and our listeners. Um, that I hadn't, one of which I hadn't heard of, hadn't realized before, but um, a direct impact and a technological impact related to trade of a much more modern conflict, the Vietnam War, uh, was the advent of containerization. Apparently, and, and there's a link in the show note, a different podcast uh, called Containers, which looks at how this occurred. The first episode, Welcome to Global Capitalism, talks about this relationship. But uh, to sum it up very briefly, uh, in order to supply the growing demands of the Vietnam War, uh, a commercial company was approached um, by the American military to supply um, their troops in, in, in Southeast Asia, and particularly in Vietnam, and the container, the shipping container, which we all rely on today, was was the outcome of that. The other thing, though, and the, the sort of the one of the central points about America's geopolitical interest in the Asia Pacific and the growth of what we call tiger economies is also the product of these conflicts. The Korean War is sort of the first start of this. That actually jump started the Japanese economy again post World War II. The American operations in in Korea necessitated a huge amount of material uh, at a time when they were trying to get rid of it post World War II. And so they started seeking new partners to help supply them. And Japan became one of those partners. So first they started supplying rations and, and uniforms, but very quickly um, it became automotive uh, components and then whole trucks. Vietnam, again, bird a, a new demand for high-tech electronics. And if we think about the Japanese manufacturing economy today, we think about you know high-tech electronic industries and, and have done for decades. That starts when the Americans are demanding components for radar sets, even missile components in the, in the Vietnam War. So it's, it's amazing to see how conflicts, both in, in the 19th and tw- early 20th centuries, and even today, really have a really lasting impact on the economies and the trade relations we build. I think that's perhaps the lesson we're trying to get out of this episode. Absolutely. And I think it's important here to recognize, and I, we will do, uh, we always say we're going to do military industrialization complex at some point, but it's important to know that this concept of tiger economies never really went away. And particularly when you look at Australia's region, sort of Southeast Asia, the level of military modernization over the last nine years is absolutely incredible. We have probably and arguably the fastest growing militarization of any region on the planet. Um, we have some of the biggest weapons exporters and some of the biggest weapons importers. South Korea, for example, maintains its status as one of the major weapons exporters in the world. And even our ASEAN neighbours, for example, are among the top importers of weapon systems in today's climate. In only the last nine years, Vietnam's actual defence import, so importation of weapon systems, has jumped by 800%, largely in response to Chinese uh, posturing in the region and aggression. But I think it's important to note here that the thing that all ASEAN nations have in common at the moment is they're purchasing upgrades to what they call their green water navy which is littoral ships um when you say littoral ships you're talking about ships that are capable of operating off a, a coast but not under uh, not for on the, the listeners that don't really grasp that as a concept we're looking at more coast guard than navy we're looking at ships that operate usually within sight of shore these ships are designed not to fight wars but to protect trade lanes 
and protect against encroachment by foreign powers into economic exclusion zones and the like. So you can see that even in today's climate, even as close as our immediate region, we still have this very intricate relationship between trade and war. And I don't think that you can actually separate the two. Definitely, I don't think that you can add a moral value to them as Green does. And I guess bringing this back to the first section of the the episode, both of these, of course, have been seminal development, seminal institutions in the formation of what we call today the modern state, or what even the Romans or the Sumerians or any other advanced culture or empire has has relied upon to, to, to form a congruent political body. Well, that's all we have time for tonight. Once again, we'd like to welcome all of our listeners back to a new season of On War, the podcast. We're very excited where we might take this semester, and we're hoping that more of you will join us as the show goes on. If you've had any thoughts on today's episode, we'd love to hear from you, either in the comments section, or even better, on our subreddit. The link, as well as to our show notes, Patreon, and social media pages can be found below. Join us in two weeks' time as we take a dive into history and explore the great game of high diplomacy, intrigue, and war that characterized the political world of the 19th century, and what it might mean for today. As always, thank you for listening, and good night. Thank you.